Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, we have a triple whammy of features because I'm on holiday, so there's no news around this week. Uh, we're going to be talking about weapons of the future with Kelsey Atherton, uh, military technology journalist. We're going to explore why we see spirals so much in nature and how they come about. And we're also going to talk a little bit uh, to uh, Andrew Mooney. He's uh, from the Department of Zoology in Trinity College, Dublin, and at Dublin Zoo, where they're trying to set up a cryobank of species to try and save as many species on the planet uh, through preserving tissue and DNA as they possibly can. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at newstalkscience. Now, we can see it in our news feeds every single day. As war rages on the eastern frontiers of Europe, so too are the changing dynamics evident in the way war is conducted in the 21st century. But as tactics and strategies continue to evolve, so too do the technologies that underpin the armed forces of nations the world over. So when it comes to the weapons of the future, what can we expect exactly? We're joined now by military technology journalist Kelsey D. Atherton. Kelsey, one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you was your article on the Thor defense system. Maybe you might tell us a little bit about that first. What is Thor? Thor is a microwave weapon. It's a high, it's a directed energy weapon being developed and tested by the United States Air Force as a way to defeat drones and specifically to defeat drones in the plural. A lot of existing countermeasures focus on one drone at a time, and the idea of Thor is it's a box you set up, it has its microwave emitter, and it can fry the electronics of all the drones caught within that emitter's array. Uh, so it's a it's a narrow beam of a microwave shot at, at, at sort of drones, and it just basically malfunctions their, their processor, or how, how does that work? Yeah. It, it fries the electronics. The microwave travels through. It makes it hard for the connections that make everything about modern electronics, the semiconductors, all the, the wiring. It overloads that um, in what the military, what the, the U.S. military likes to refer to as a non-kinetic kill, which is to say it doesn't explode it or shoot it. It just passes this uh, invisible to the naked eye beam through the drone's body destroying the computer parts inside and then uh, having the drones sort of sputter out and fall as gravity takes over. That, um, it sounds like from a from an energy and, and a, a, you know, physics point of view, it sounds like a, quite a difficult thing to build. Has this been, uh, this technology been around for a long time? It's been in testing since 2019, at least. The microwave weapons have been um, explored and developed for some time before that. The United States had previously worked on a missile, a cruise missile with a designed to emit high-powered microwaves called CHAMP, which was the idea would be you'd fire it at an enemy headquarters or where like their command centers are, and it would emit these microwaves, and then suddenly the equipment wouldn't work, but it would be a way to stop the technology without doing this, without needing to explode any of the parts or the people involved. Um, so there's been research on how to make microwave weapons work for a while. Thor itself has been in testing and iteration since at least 2019. Um, I'm not a scientist, but um, as far as I was aware, microwaves were quite dangerous to people. Uh, emitting these uh, high power microwave pulses at people is not dangerous? It 
is one that in the, the materials they tend to describe, um, they refer to it, they are always contrasting with the, the suite of kinetics. So it is less dangerous than the other things they do. It is not necessarily something I would say we could uh, wholly write off. I certainly wouldn't want to have a pacemaker and be near a microwave weapon. Right. Um, so this is intended to take out uh, so-called kinetics. Um, and this is sort of a classification of a type of weapon that the army has. So kinetics is sort of a Pentagon euphemism for what we would just call traditional weaponry. It's to distinguish between electronic warfare really is the way we talk about this. Electronic warfare is when weapons um, or tools emit signals on the electromagnetic spectrum that are useful but aren't causing direct physical harm, or at least not in the same way that an explosion or a bullet would. So a microwave, a high-powered microwave, is a non-kinetic weapon. Um, It's directed energy. Um, So it would be a, like, radar jammer would also fall under an electronic warfare, and that's contrasted with the other ways of stopping drones which would be shooting at them with bullets or with missiles. Right. And, and, and in that case, uh, you've got explosions, which make, makes that sort of a, an action a lot more dangerous to, to, to bystanders or, or people um, in action. Um, in terms of the, the direction of this, is it quite wide or how does it manage to target the pulse to find the drone? Because these drones obviously can move very, very quickly. Yeah, so it emits, it emits in a cone. It's a, it covers an area. When the Pentagon releases diagrams, when the Air Force talks about how this would be part of a defense, they envision, I think, usually one or two Thor systems. You would be covering approaches to a base. You would have some area coverage. You wouldn't be covering all of it with one. It's not um, emitting omnidirectionally. Um, so it's still targeted, but it would be there. And part of what it works is that the it spreads as it go as the cone goes out. So there's an effective point at which you would be able to catch a clustered enough swarm at a far enough point where you could stop it before it got to a base. And the need for weapons technology like this is apparent in the increasing use of drones. And we see um, every day on Twitter um, videos from the Ukraines uh, and, and the Russians uh, using drones on the battlefield. Is the future of war just drones fighting drones? Well, the future of war will be people with drones fighting people with drones, what has really stood out in Ukraine is not just the uh, widespread use of what we might think of as like the big sort of broader predator style or reaper style drones or uh, the Bayraktar is a big one there and Russia has its own suite of those. Those are um, plane sized and have uh, remote pilots and carry weapons. That's a big part of it. But we've also seen, and this is really what, what sets Ukraine apart, we have seen uh, infantry go into battle with quadcopters, with quadcopters that they have purchased personally, that they bought off the market, that they brought with them to make sure that when they are fighting in the, the forests or in the cities, they can look around the corner and see if there's another squad of infantry there. And if they're not using a drone to see that, they're very worried that the other mm. squad they're fighting is. Right, so so they're bringing personal drones that they they may have gotten at um, you know the equivalent of Target or whatever um, uh, to essentially help them in the field with, with non-military weapons. Right, these are these are sort of uh, commercial 
consumer goods that people are using to deploy because um, because of the ease of access to them, right? Absolutely, absolutely. This is stuff um, broadly. A lot of them are made by a Chinese company that uh, has the lion's share of the market, but they're all over. There's hobbyist kits, there's parts. Um, and these drones have, they've seen a lot of use since the February 2022 invasion, but they also saw use um, when the conflict was somewhat more contained to just the the, the Netsk region, or um, the, the Donbass. And I recall reporting a story in 2018 where a Ukrainian forces fighting there had taken a DJI Mavic. Like that's a pretty standard hobbyist off the shelf, fly around, take cool pictures of your vacation or get an aerial view of your house kind of drone. And what they had done is they had taken a gripper and attached it to it. And they had a remote button so that the gripper could hold a grenade and they could release the grenade from the gripper and drop it on a trench below. And that was 2018. Wow. And so these have been used for scouting and for fighting for years. Um, and now at a scale of the thousands and tens of thousands of drones being used on the front. God, I mean, it, it must make being an, an active uh, inf infantry in that environment absolutely terrifying. Um, let's go beyond drones and, and this Thor system. What sort of new technologies are we seeing at DARPA and, and uh, American Air Forces develop that we know about? Obviously, there's, there's probably a lot of development that goes on that is um, behind closed doors. But what sort of other weapons of the future are being developed that we know of? Certainly. So one of the other things that um, I sort of the transition to talking about the rest of what DARPA is doing, another kind of directed energy, which is worth mentioning that shows up in this space is, um, is just simply high powered lasers, which are also used as a counter drone technology. They burn, they, they'll use automated targeting or to find and hold onto a target lock on a drone against the horizon. And then um, a human operator will pull the trigger um, and be able to continuously send a beam of energy to melt through that drone's um, casing, that drone's parts, and then the drone will fall down from melting. Um, a popular science, you can read the story where I was uh, invited to test this in the field. Um, or, well, in a testing ground. But I was able to test this and see what it looks like firsthand. So that's one. So we have that kind of thing. And then from there, we're looking at kind of autonomous wow. systems, which are designed to let drones operate with even less need for human control. If they lose the connection, can the drone still go there? Can the robot operate in places um, that it's hard to send signals out? Yeah, I, I remember uh, maybe 10 years ago looking at... Um a sort of a USB style a drone that could be used to go on tracks and you could affix any sort of weapon onto it and then and send it out and that that was quite some time ago so can I imagine how far we've we've um, we've advanced the question of course being asked by everyone is how much AI are we putting in these things and and are uh, countries like America China Russia respecting the uh, sort of unspoken rule that we don't let you know, computers make decisions on on uh, kill situations. Do you think that is being respected by all sides, given what you report on? So I think it's being respected, but I also think we can probably um, expect a military to define human control somewhat differently than the human rights advocates or weapons monitors might. 
When this came, I had in conversation with a former Undersecretary of Defense, Bob Work. If we talk about a cruise missile that has a guiding system that works when it's launched, it takes it where it goes, and then it find it goes to the the coordinates it was sent to, and it plots its path there. Um, so it's steering itself in flight. The human is in control when it's launched. The weapon is in control when it's in flight. One of the weapons that sort of is a cusp weapon for thinking about this um, is was the long-range anti-ship missile, which had the ability to detect a second ship if the first ship it was sent to sink was sunk. Um, and in works understanding, if they did that, that's basically the same thing as firing a cruise missile, even if it chooses a second ship than the one it was initially fired at. Um, it's the human still made the control when it was launched. Um, and this comes up in the world of, of drones and robotics, where a lot of the autonomy we see is in mobility. It's in making it move through the space. It's in doing the autopilot functions of a plane or the sort of self-driving functions of a ground vehicle. And what is trickier and harder to parse in sort of the biggest area for um, to keep an eye on is when does it make the decision if it has a weapon to use that weapon? There's a family of weapons called loitering mm. munitions, which were originally developed as a way to destroy anti-air missile installations that can um, target on the radar signature of an anti-air missile installation. And when they detect that, they go from being a drone looking around for something to a missile flying into it and blowing up. Um, there's the Harpy and the Harap. They were developed by Israel. There's others, but those are the big names in that space. I mean, it's that kind of, that already exists. That's existed for a while. What gets trickier is when um, it starts targeting not just a radar, but when it starts targeting where people are, when it might find a vehicle. Are we going to really trust that the image recognition um, processing and cameras on a drone can tell a school bus apart from a tank and they tell, um, make those kind of distinctions. And if they don't make those distinctions or if they're not sure, is the human who is overseeing this going to be able to make the decisions based on the information it's receiving? Um, and there's a lot of interest, especially um, I've talked primarily with people in the US military in making sure that drones follow commands. They don't want machines that exist outside the chain of command. Um, but that still is a hard problem <laughs> if you want to have take advantage of the speed of automated processing. It's tricky to figure out how you put a human into that without losing that speed. And that's a big tension in military development around this. I, I bet it is. But uh, if I were to give you a sci-fi scenario, we, we already have, you know, good facial recognition technology. Um, we have... FPV drones or, or drones that can travel at incredible speeds. And we have, you know, um, laser precise targeting weapons. Uh, you know, it seems that is the perfect mix of technologies to create assassin uh, robots that you, you send to a crowd to find a specific person and, and assassinate. That, that, that scenario sounds far-fetched, but obviously from a military and tactical point of view, it could be hugely useful. For example, in the, in the search for Osama bin Laden, you know, you, you can imagine that sort of technology would have been a much safer approach. Is that is that miles away from the capabilities? And is that likely to be uh, something that, that militaries will deploy officially or unofficially? So I think it's miles away in 
there's a few limitations on it. One is that facial recognition um, can be good, but getting a drone positioned to an exact face and getting it at that resolution and close is tricky. I also once, and this was not not too long ago, it was a couple of years ago, I saw a company, big company in the sensor space was demonstrating their their object recognition AI. And they're like, it's so powerful. It can tell apart civilians from insurgents. It can tell apart friendly forces from hostile forces. And at the same time that this spokesperson was praising the capability of their sensor, they had a display up where it used the same like color boxes around objects on the screen and it identified a person and a tree as the same thing. So um, that has made me a little <laughs> less worried about the immediacy of this threat. Um, though I think certainly we can worry about what the implications mean for automated processing because it's still a problem if you have an automated system and you think you're shooting it at an insurgent and it misses, or you think you're shooting it at a tree to clear some cover and instead it's hitting people. Um, I worry less about this technology getting good enough for science fiction, um, assassin robot slaughter bots style plots than I do about the kind of baseline errors that will come in when people assume the machine is more capable than it is and use it in combat anyway. Yeah. Uh, I find this subject both fascinating and terrifying. Really fantastic speaking with you, Kelsey D. Atherton, military technology journalist. Thank you for your time. A pleasure. Now, they're found so commonly in the natural world, such a precise mathematical pattern from pine cones to ferns unfolding, hurricanes, and so many other natural phenomena. We see this familiar spiral shape looking back at us. But why? That's a question Dr. Sandy Hetherington from the Institute of Molecular Plant Sciences at the University of Edinburgh has been trying to answer. He joins me now. Um, th this shape that we see, Sandy, it, it is, uh, it's known as the Fibonacci spiral. Can you uh, explain what it is uh, exactly so that people can visualize it in their mind's eye? Yeah, exactly. So um, spirals are found really commonly in nature, like you said. And what happens if we investigate spirals in um, and quantify them, we find that they're in many ways described by the famous mathematical series, the Fibonacci series. So the Fibonacci series is a series of numbers which are derived from adding together the previous two to give the next one, giving this, giving the formula the 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, etc, etc. And what's amazing about these spirals we find in nature is when we count the number of both clockwise and anti-clockwise spirals we find, for example, in a pine cone, we always find that the number of both clockwise and anti-clockwise spirals are always numbers in the famous Fibonacci series. And so it's a real mystery why they're just so common. And does that matter at what stage of development they are? So, I mean, maybe I've gotten this wrong, but for a pine cone, uh, the, the spiral of those... Um, are they leaves or what would you, what's on a pine cone? Yeah, we'd normally call them bracts. So these bracts, I mean, it, uh, do they um, increase in number and, and in that rate, it, does it matter at what point you investigate the pine cone? Will you always see a Fibonacci number in it? Yeah, so what's so fascinating is almost at every stage of the plant during its development, these Fibonacci numbers keep cropping up. So we zoom in on the very tip under a microscope and you looked at developing, um, developing pine cone or the leaves on that same plant you'd see that they're developed in a very, very precise order, even when they're, they're tiny, tiny in size. Um, and what we find is they're actually being developed at the famous, um, the famous golden angle, which is, again, derived from the Fibonacci number. 
So as they're being arranged in this tiny little placement, they're being arranged um, exactly in this Fibonacci series. Zoom out a little bit further and you begin to see these Fibonacci series um, cropping up again and again in these types of spirals. And what's really nice um, for this is that they actually also just display at this macro level so that just with your naked eye, you can recognize these. But this is actually underpinned by this tiny, really, really tiny development at the apex. Which, which is interesting, of course, because you would imagine um, cells, for example, one divides to two, those two divide to four, those four divide to eight, and so on and so forth. And so you imagine that that would happen everywhere else in nature, that, you know, that as these things increase, that they would be exponential rather than follow this weird sort of curving um, uh, uh, increase in, in, in number. Why do we... Um, why do we think that happens? I mean, if we think, look at the head of a sunflower, for example, this also follows that uh, Fibonacci spiral sequence in terms of the number of seeds that we see. Why, why is that? Yeah, so it's a really, really great evolution question. And it's something which is um, people have been pondering for about over 150 years or so. It's something which um, Charles Darwin himself was really fascinated in. And there's kind of three main hypotheses that have been put forward um, to account for this. The first is that Fibonacci spirals are really good at minimizing self-shading. So what I mean by that is that um, they're arranged in a way where the leaves at the top don't, uh, they're minimizing the amount of um, shading on the ones below. So therefore they might be optimal for light capture. So that's one really hmm. good hypothesis. The next one is about um, space space filling. So if you picture that sunflower head again, the you know one of the aims for that sunflower head is to maximize on the number of seeds it can fit. And Fibonacci patterns are just really remarkable at that. And then the final one, which is also quite an interesting one, is that, in fact, there isn't really a really strong biological significance. And maybe this is actually more of a natural pattern, that if you gradually develop structures from, from the tip of a shoot, that they might naturally form these Fibonacci patterns. As you said, they're so common in nature, maybe it is just almost like a natural phenomenon. So these are the kind of three main hypotheses that are still lively debated. Talk me through your experiments. What are you looking at and why? So we were really interested um, in general in trying to understand what, what innovations enable plants to thrive on the surface today. And we're particularly interested about the origin of leaves. When did leaves evolve and enable plants to you know, vastly increase their capacity to capture light? Um, and so we were very interested in the earliest group of leafy plants, plants that lived um, over 400 million years ago. And given how widespread these Fibonacci patterns are in living plants today, we really predicted that if we turned to the fossil record and looked at these early plants, we'd expect to find them. But what mm. came as a real shock for us is that when we described leaf arrangement in one of these earliest leafy plants, we found that the leaves were, in fact, arranged in non-Fibonacci patterns. What, what sort of a pattern were they in? So they were described in two main types of patterns. The first were what we would class as whorls. So a whorl, if you were looking at it, um, means that you have a um, leaves surrounding the stem in one area, and then there'll be a big gap on the stem with no leaves, and then another um, collection of, of leaves. So this is one kind of pattern. And the other one was spirals, but instead of being Fibonacci, they were described as non-Fibonacci. So when we quantified them in that same way I mentioned earlier about counting the number of clockwise and anti-clockwise spirals, we found that the numbers that came out were just never consecutive numbers in the famous Fibonacci series. Right. So, um, so they didn't fit this um, understanding that you had. So, why is that interesting? I mean, could these Fibonacci spirals not have just evolved? Uh, you know, a hundred million years later, when you looked at these really early plants, maybe they hadn't figured out yet through evolution that the Fibonacci spiral is a is a much better way of arranging its seeds or branches or leaves. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's 
that's basically what got us so excited about this, is we're looking at this very early time point when we expect Fibonacci patterns to be there. And to actually identify that these features that are so common today were not around at the time really poses a lot of interesting questions. Just like you said, is it was it an adaptive advantage? Was the environment different at that time that it favoured these non-Fibonacci patterns? Or had evolution just not stumbled upon um, you know, this famous type of patterning? And so that's what got us so excited and you know, we're hoping to follow up in, in more detail of. But just to start with, this sort of opened the door to, to wondering about the, you know, the prevalence of Fibonacci spirals today. What about animals? Um, because the, the separation of, of um, plants and animals in the evolutionary tree, right? That would have been well before 407 million years ago, right? So, yes. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Do, so do we see Fibonacci spirals um, anywhere near animals or is it just the plant kingdom that we see them? Yeah, interesting. So what, what we actually do find is um, these famous kind of golden spirals, which we also um, are also captured by the Fibonacci series and describe it. And they're also found in animals and in natural, um, yeah, natural structures like hurricanes you mentioned already. So a great example would be the, the shell of a type of animal called a nautilus. The spiral in that is, is one of these exact golden spirals. But what's so interesting about plants is because we find them at these multiple different levels, because we can count both these clockwise and anti-clockwise spirals we find, they're just far more prevalent in plants. And so we don't find these ones precisely as commonly in animals as we do in plants. But um, an interesting take on this is if we move outside of um, the land plants today and we look in a variety of the other types of uh, other types of plants, such as algae and seaweed, and in fact, it, um, these Fibonacci type patterns have also been described in seaweeds. So this kind of implies that it might be something linked with it might be something linked with the way that plants and algae develop, or it might be down to capturing light again. Is it also seen in in trees? Do we see Fibonacci spirals in trees? Yes, we do actually. So what's interesting is they're found so ubiquitously through the plant kingdom that if you look at um, the arrangement of leaves on trees, you'll also see this pattern pattern there. So one one kind of great example of that might be say a monkey puzzle tree. And they're often quite spiky looking, but you can actually see the arrangement of their leaves forming these these really definite spirals. And even on the trunks of those big trees, you can see, um, yeah, the arrangement of leaves. So yeah, they, you know, remarkably are found from everything from um, mosses all the way to to giant giant redwoods. So really, in you know, plants of all scales, really. So um, what's the next thing to, to explore here? Are, are you going to try and find um, the beginning of Fibonacci spirals in, in the plant kingdom? Is, that, is, that, is it possible to do, given the exp expanse of species and, uh, and the expanse of time? So exactly, that would be um, the kind of thing we'd be really interested to do. So obviously, now we know that there's very early evidence of these non-Fibonacci spirals, it'll be really important to now go and search through the fossil record further to, to really pinpoint when can we say that Fibonacci spirals are present. And what I'm really interested in doing is actually understanding when they became so prevalent. So as I said, today they're found in over 90% of species. And yet this, wow. early, this early fossil seems to suggest that they weren't as prevalent very, very early in the evolutionary history. So when was this transition and what does that correlate with? Is it Does it change with the way that the plants are growing and developing or environmental changes? And I think, you know, um, an investigation of the fossil record is going to be really key to do this. But but presumably plants were so diverse at that, at that time, there isn't like a, you know, a common ancestor of these plants that, that, that could have developed it individually. The, the thinking presumably is that this spiraling um, was so evolutionary advantageous that it it evolved across many species at 
various different points and that's why we see it so so much today is that is that the thing generally definitely so we're particularly interested in the this phenomena of convergent evolution where the same trait crops up multiple times in different lineages and that's exactly Mm. what we're what we're able to demonstrate with fibonacci spirals so beforehand before our study it was really predicted that fibonacci spirals were likely there in that common ancestor of all all of the, uh, the group of plants known as the Pascal plants, and that they were highly conserved throughout that lineage for over, over 400 million years. Whereas um, our study, combined with other investigations of fossils, really seems to suggest that wasn't the case. And in fact, these Fibonacci spirals have cropped up multiple times independently. Um, yeah, which is really fascinating. It really begs the question as to why they're so common. Apart from it being sort of an elegant sequence of numbers, is the Fibonacci sequence useful at all in mathematics or computational um, sciences? Yes, I think Fibonacci, um, the Fibonacci sequence is, is used commonly um, Yeah, within computational sciences. Um, I think a lot of people have um, investigated it for a whole whole range of reasons, I think people even use it in financial modeling and a whole whole range of things like this. So it's it crops up a lot. People find it, uh, yeah, really interesting, really interesting to investigate. So plants are they're obviously using that the classic um, kind of Fibonacci sequence, but it seems to be cropping up in many different yeah many different places in plants. So as you said, we see spirals everywhere, but not all spirals are Fibonacci spirals. So on on your next walk, if you're looking around. How, how might someone identify whether or not they're looking at something that is evidence of a Fibonacci number for, you know, because we're out, it's, it's summer, people are out taking walks. How might they look out for the Fibonacci sequence in action in nature? Yeah, that's a, that's a great thing to do. So you've already mentioned sunflower heads. So I think that would be a great example where you can actually go and um, see this in nature for yourself. For me, I think one of the easiest ones to go and spot would be pine cones, because you really can pick up, pick up a pine cone and look at the base of a pine cone and um, you can really count the number of these clockwise and anti-clockwise spirals yourself. Um, and in the vast, vast majority of cases, when you're looking at this, um, you're you're likely to find something either 3-5 or 5-8 as a pattern between the clockwise and anti-clockwise spirals. Um, there was a study that was carried out, um, a scientific study, where they, they analyzed all the pine cones from a tree for a number of years. So they're looking at thousands and thousands of these pine cones. And in that study, they found, again, over 95% of them were Fibonacci. So I think that could be quite a nice example to go looking for yourself, as as are in um, you know flowers like daisies, sunflowers that are out at the moment. These are all examples of Fibonacci spirals, and even just with your um, the the camera on your phone, you could take a picture of it and be able to begin to recognise and count up these spirals. Just one last question before I let you go. You said ninety five percent. What on earth could account for those that aren't Fibonacci? If, if it's a, a plant that has evolved this particular. Uh, behavior let's call it a behavior um why would five percent not is it would that be down to disease or or why why would any plants who have evolved this over centuries and millennia and millions of years why would they not have a fibonacci number yeah it's a really good question i think it really comes down to biological diversity in general so often with biology there's always things that break the rule for a variety of reasons i think because the fibonacci series is linked so much to this very precise mode of growth Anything which really disrupts that can actually lead to the production of non-Fibonacci spirals. Um, and so it is very rare, but you can imagine if there is some sort of damage to the apex. Um, you know, you mentioned about you know, whether it's kind of predation or viral. Um, so some sort of disease may actually link to um, the production of these non-Fibonacci spirals. And if, if right. not, then it's something down to just ran- random chance that the one in, you know, one in a huge number eventually just does something ever so slightly different. 
which is, I suppose, part of the beauty of life, isn't it? Uh, Dr. Sandy yes. Hetherington from the University of Edinburgh. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me on the programme. It's a sad truth that the number of species on this planet is diminishing every day, mostly due to human activity. And in order to perhaps save what we have and even one day restore species back from the edge of extinction, we need to save as many samples of living animals right now as we can. Here to talk to us about cryopreservation and its importance in science is Dr. Andrew Mooney. He is with Dublin Zoo and the Department of Zoology at Trinity College Dublin. Andrew, maybe you might start off by explaining the process of cryo-freezing. Thanks for having me. It's um, it's a little bit different than just taking something and chucking it in a freezer like you would after you go shopping. A little bit more involved than that. But it's actually not that difficult. All we're really doing is when an animal passes away or if you get a chance to sample an animal, you take a small bit of its tissue. So it could be a little bit of its ear or something. And then you process that and you clean it up a little bit. And then you put it in a small tube and you put it in a tank with liquid nitrogen. And that will bring its temperature down to a minus 196 degrees Celsius. And at that level, nothing really happens. So the cells stay alive. And then when you thaw it out, you can start doing stuff with those cells. So they're in a state of suspended animation while they're in the freezers. But that's basically it. When you say you put the sample in liquid nitrogen, do we, do we put it in a container first? Or does that sample say it's a, a piece of an ear of a giraffe or whatever? Um, do, does that go straight into liquid nitrogen? No, so you'll, you'll clean it up a little bit and you put it in a very small plastic vial with a little bit of liquid protectant to stop anything bad happening right. um, as the freezing starts to happen. And then once you just take it out of the little tube, you can start working with it. Okay, so it's, it's in a solution um, and then that's, that solution or that, that test tube essentially goes into the, the liquid nitrogen. Yeah. Okay, so um, the, these samples... What sort of sizes do you typically work with? Like you probably wouldn't put an entire mammal in there, right? Or, or do we do that? <laughs> no, these are really small samples we're talking about, only a couple of millimeters wide for each one. So it's a very small amount, but there's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of cells in that little small sample. So you don't really realize the potential of it. You don't actually need a whole ear or a whole animal. And that's because typically with these samples, all we're interested in is perhaps tissue structure, but mostly the DNA. Is that correct? Yeah, we're looking at actual genetics in that sample. And where are we with that so far? Have we sampled most of the species? <laughs> I really wish we had. Unfortunately, no, it's, it is a little bit expensive and you need a little bit of expertise to do it. So we haven't really scratched the surface of it yet. The, the best example we have comes from San Diego Zoo and they've been doing this since the 70s. And since that started, they've only sampled around a thousand species. Um, wow. So really... It is a lot of time and effort and commitment involved in this. So we're only scratching the surface of it. So are there different methods for different types of animals because they have different types of tissue? So you have, you know, um, the leathery hide of, a, of an elephant versus, uh, you know, uh, something as small as a worm or, um, or eye tissue, for example. Are there different processes for different types of tissues or different types of animals? Yes, there's so much variation in here because every species is so different. So it can vary if you're looking at a tissue sample or if you're looking at a sperm sample. There's lots of different ways you need to manage those separately. 
But even at a really high level, mammals are very different to amphibians who are very different to reptiles who are very different to birds. So each one of those has their own set of protocols that we're trying to learn as we go for this. And for every new species we sample, it's a bit of a guessing game, looking what has worked in the past and seeing if it'll work again. So yeah, it's definitely an area that's emerging and there's a lot more work to do. How many of these sort of samples have you yourself processed and what is the what is the goal are we hoping to 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 do the same as a san diego zoo and and have thousands of samples in our in our collection in um in the department of zoology in trinity do you choose the same species as as they have or is there a global effort to try and um collect different samples from different species so that there's more diversity oh that that that's a lot of questions. Um, so I globally, what we would love is a network of different organizations, zoos and aquariums, universities, working together to bank as much as they can and feeding all that into a central database. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. We have a few really good collections like San Diego Zoo who are doing really fantastic work on their own, but there's no coordinated effort. And my work at Trinity was looking at how we can assess the conservation value of a collection and then trying to be more strategic in what we prioritize. There's now over a million species threatened with extinction and it's gonna take a lot of time to actually get access to those samples and process them and freeze them. So we need to be a bit smarter about which species we sample and why. And that's really what this work focused on. How do you go about doing that? Because obviously, if you're looking at a species that's nearly extinct, it can sometimes be hard to find the sample in the first place. Yeah, and the one thing that people really overlook here is at our very fingertips, and that's zoos and aquariums. Zoos and aquariums have thousands of threatened species in their collections. So, for example, if we want to sample a whooping crane, which is incredibly endangered, we don't need to go to the wild to find that. We can call up the nearest zoo with an animal. And then when that animal passes away, we can get that tissue sample sent to a biobanking facility. So in Dublin Zoo, do we have a, a cryopreservation facility that you're using for the samples that you're taking? And is there a hope to, to build that up? Dublin Zoo is currently in the process of establishing a cryopreservation facility on site, which would give us the capacity to not only collect and store samples from our own animals here at the zoo, but also from other zoo and aquarium collections around Ireland and even native species then. Really what we want to do is create a national biobanking hub to protect biodiversity and particularly genetic diversity in Ireland. I presume you have to be very careful. I mean, um, with the San Diego Zoo, if the power goes out and the temperature changes, those samples are destroyed, right? So there must be a, a number of precautions to make sure that that uh, temperature of liquid nitrogen doesn't rise to room temperature. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of safety um, networks in place for that. So each tank has its own set of alarms. So if the level of liquid nitrogen gets too low, then an alarm will go off. Um, but in terms of catastrophic failure, there's always backup generators for all of these. And for San Diego, because they've been doing it for so long, they have an entire duplication of their collection offsite in an undisclosed location. So if anything happens, their primary collection, everything is already backed up. It sounds un like an expensive process um, to, to sort of preserve these things uh, with backup systems and uh, offsite systems uh, with liquid nitrogen um, in a secure facility. I presume that costs a lot of money. Not as much as you would think. The, because the actual process of it is relatively simple, it does require a bit of an investment to get the right equipment in. But once you have the equipment in place, all you're really doing is paying for liquid nitrogen to maintain it. 
And that's not incredibly expensive, especially when you look at the global kind of money we're spending on conservation efforts. This is only a very small fraction of that. So there are some species that can be frozen and come back to life, right? There are some uh, frogs, uh, for example, tree frogs, I think, where they can actually be so cold that they they feel like ice cubes, but you can warm them and they will return to life. Is that... Um, is that something that we are investigating for full animals to see how long we might be able to preserve them? Uh, either uh, good candidates for full species uh, freezing, or is that just not something that um, we're particularly interested in? No, that that's much more in the science fiction realm than the, the science fact realm, unfortunately. If it was that easy, it'd be much simpler um, just to throw a whole rhino in a freezer and come back in <laughs> a couple of decades. But no, for most species, that's not even in our realm of thinking. What is it about freezing our our tissues that uh, preserves it so well? What is happening on a molecular level? You're basically just stopping all biological activity within the cell um, so that once you defrost it, the cell is actually still alive at the end of it. And you can do things with that cell, like start growing more cells from it. That part seems like it might be tricky as well, because when you freeze something typically um, crystals form right and um, particularly if there's water there and crystals can create uh, tears in tissue and it's why a lot of the time when we try and um, re rewarm things like uh, meat for example it can be mushy or not the same texture that's not great when we're talking about a, a biological sample we wanted to have that same structure um, uh, as it has when we froze it how do you get around something like that yeah, that's the, the really tricky step. And that's where the liquid protectant comes in that you put in with the tissue sample before you put it in the liquid nitrogen. And um, that very special liquid is the, the really sensitive part that a lot of companies work with. And that makes sure that no crystals actually form during the freezing process, that once it's brought back, it's fully intact. Have we dug into the the, the freezer and, and pulled out any samples to, to use again in de-extinction efforts already or is that something that's very much in the future no we're already using these samples today um, and san diego zoo has been at the forefront of those efforts as well so a really good example of this came a couple of years ago when they cloned a black-footed ferret now it's not the most charismatic species but it was presumed extinct in the u.s until a very small population was found um, and what they did with those animals was they brought them into captivity and they tried to make a insurance population but not all of those animals actually ended up reproducing. So when they died, their genetics died with them. But all of the animals were actually sampled before they died. So even though the animal was dead and its genetics were gone, the sample with the genetics was still alive. And in 2019, San Diego Zoo actually cloned some of those animals who had never reproduced and brought back genetics that had been dead for 35 years into the population. And did those clones reproduce? The animal hasn't reproduced yet, right? Um, but the capacity is there for it. And okay. the thing about these cells is that once you have one of these cell samples frozen, you can continually grow more cells from that. So it's kind of like a never-ending resource that we can use once the samples are actually frozen. What about um, species like the northern white rhino that are, uh, you know, are really, uh, if not fully extinct, functionally ex extinct at the moment? How optimistic are you about efforts to, to, to save animals like these with a database like this? I try to be very optimistic about it. I think that's the only way to kind of work in conservation these days is to have some kind of optimism. 
Um, and for species like the northern white rhino, these kind of interventions may be the only hope we have to bring them back. And so for the northern white rhino, there's only two females left now. But San Diego Zoo has 12 samples in the freezers from animals that have passed away. All of their genetic diversity is there and ready to be used once we have the technology to actually start implementing that in other species. And, and finally, looking at how we've advanced uh you know, computer technology, sequencing of DNA and uh, creating synthetic life forms, uh, albeit at a very early stage, will we one day not need to store that DNA on in a in a test tube in liquid nitrogen, but rather store it on a computer to be able to program uh, cells to 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 grow um, in in utero or in vivo? until they're ready to implant. Is that, I mean, is that theoretically a possible a possibility? Is that something that's on the horizon? I think a very far way down the line, we could be looking at things like that. But at the minute, what we need to focus on is just sampling everything. When you look at genetic diversity and biodiversity in general, there will never be more biodiversity than there is this very second. 10 minutes from now, there'll be less biodiversity on the planet. So every minute that we waste and not sampling something, we're losing biodiversity. And that's really the key take home from cryopreservation. This isn't a Jurassic Park kind of thing. What we're trying to do is bank biodiversity now and then use it in the future as part of conservation work. Well, at Dublin Zoo from Trinity College, Dublin's Department of Zoology, Dr. Andrew Mooney, thanks for your time. Thank you. And that's it from us for another Future Proof. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva on sound. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.